so Mark. Yes. There's a scene in this week's movie, not an important scene, but one that viscerally grabbed me, in which <laughs> Gina Davis's character Muriel, in the middle of a store, just starts trying out the lipsticks and then putting them back on the shelf. The shiver that went down my spine, even in a not like pre-COVID world, I would have found that to be disgusting behavior. Yeah, I had a moment of like wondering, like, wait, is is this? A thing and then realizing of course it is not no i mean i think it's designed to give you insight into who muriel is as a person and i think it was written to be gross so in the spirit of that shocking scene hold on real quick i also want to point out they might have samplers but it's to put on the back of your hand yes that's true but you're also not supposed to put them on top of each other because i imagine the colors would mix in weird ways that's a very good point. Like, she puts on, like, a dark lipstick and then puts on a light lipstick over it. And clearly they had used makeup remover in between takes. Unless that's her move. Like, Muriel sort of makes her own lipstick by mixing them together. Oh, uh, it was... I I hated it so much. So anyway, I was wondering, like, what is the thing that is the worst to sample in the middle of the store? So my immediate thought was you know at candy stores where you have the scoopers yeah in the uk it's called pick and mix which i think is very fun to say and i just got an image of like a hard candy like a jolly rancher like different flavors of jolly ranchers and these things and you take one you pop it in your mouth give it a little taste and then you go "Mm, maybe not this flavor and you put it back in the pick and mix I don't think you have to put it all the way in your mouth. You can just hold it there and take a good long lick. Yeah, but the idea of free samples of candy where you put it back is maybe the most horrifying thing I could picture because it would likely be children who are inherently vectors of disease at all times. And then you would certainly develop some sort of fever that the doctors cannot figure out what it is. Yeah, that that is a horrifying one. That's grosser than mine, uh, which was just toilet paper. I'm just imagining people in the paper products aisle tearing off a square and doing a swipe up their butt to see how it feels. I mean, the thing is, that should be a service offered in the bathroom at public stores. So, like, different stalls have different brands of toilet paper, and you get to try it out. But, you know, in the privacy of a toilet stall instead of in the middle of the store, which is, I think, what your mind went to. It is what my mind went to. It even went to the point of, like, you know how sometimes there will be, like, a little hole cut in the packaging so you can feel what it feels like? Yeah, like on sheets and stuff. Yeah, I'm imagining someone taking, like, a nine-pack of toilet paper that has one of those holes and, like, trying unwieldily to (laughs) rub that against their butt. That I don't think would go well. But, you know, a sampler of different toilet papers in the bathroom might be a good way to sell the more expensive toilet paper. It's an interesting idea. And so you would have, like, it's like an advertising thing. Like, like Scott's could choose to sponsor a stall. Right. And Charmin could sponsor another one. And then you get to decide which one to buy. That's, that's not a terrible idea. Mad Men, call me. Madison Avenue, we will work on this. I'll workshop. This is your big break. This is my big break. What if I just all of a sudden did a hard pivot into advertising? Look, if all your ideas are as good as this one, I would say do it. What's another great ad idea you got, Mark? Oh, God. I've had others. They're usually related to just kind of more easy access to the product because you should stand by your product. How many of them involve blimps? Can you believe there are only 25 blimps? It's one of my favorite facts. 
That's the definition of a fun fact. I Well, it's not that fun because there should be more blimps. I personally would love to take a luxury blimp ride across the Atlantic. We should bring that back. Granted, without the hydrogen and risk of exposure. Exposure? <laughs> explosions. I like exposure as a term. Like, there's an explosion... But if you don't die in the explosion, you are exposed to <laughs> the elements of being way high up in the air. Yeah, or it's the uh, the like feeling of being exploded. Yeah. I was wondering what the other half of the word came from. I didn't even realize myself that it was exposure. Yeah, it's just another way to die. That's what we need. Even more. I mean, you know who could use some advertising? The guy writing those weird travel books. <laughs> That are almost certainly blogs now in this yes, movie. But it seems like they're selling well. I can't tell. It's so niche. But it's also, I guess, we live in a post-travel book world. I don't yeah. know how important they were in the past. And I just think, part of the thing is, I think the scene at the beginning of the movie where we see the guy who has read his books is meant to indicate to us, like, oh, these are things that people have read. Like, he is not toiling in obscurity. Well, we will get into this and more in this week's episode of We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And why on earth did this man take this job? And also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are continuing our look at the Best Picture nominees of 1988 by digging into the romance of Lawrence Kasdan's adaptation of Ann Tyler's novel, The Accidental Tourist. To start off, my biggest critique of this film. Not enough Kathleen Turner. It is two hours and she disappears for a solid, like, hour and a half in the middle. Yeah, I don't think the movie is better if she's in more of it, but it is more fun. I don't mean the character of Sarah, I guess. I just mean we always need more Kathleen Turner, specifically. Yes. And, you know, every moment she's on screen and this, you're like, right, Kathleen Turner. She looks amazing. She sounds like Katherine Hepburn. Like, get her everywhere. Truly one of the greatest voices in Hollywood history. This is the same year as Roger Rabbit. Which she should have been nominated for. The first Academy Award for voice acting. Honestly, I would have given it. I would have believed it for Kathleen Turner in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. She's so good in that movie. That movie works as well as it does because of her voice acting, I would say. Absolutely. But this movie, not really about her. Much more about William Hurt in one of the most depressing performances I've ever seen. Yeah, I will say, like, I watched this movie two days ago. I found it merely good. Yes, I agree. William Hurt's performance has really stuck with me. It was so glum. Even in his happy moments, he was still depressed. Which was, I guess, realistic, but also tough to watch in a film. It's a long time to watch that. Yeah, I think some variance in performance would have helped. Because at a certain point, you just lose interest because there's no ups or downs in the performance. And yeah, like like you said, I think that there's something insightful about the way that any stronger emotion he feels, he almost feels in spite of himself, like as he is being more won over by Muriel and especially by Alexander. But really, this is a character that has responded to the death of his son by 
just completely yielding to whatever the strongest force in the room is. Right. He completely loses himself. And we have no idea what his self is before the loss of his son. Like, we don't know how excited. That's the biggest unanswered question in there. There's a reference by Sarah to the idea that, like, even when their son was alive, they were not that close as individuals. But uh, Macon and his wife were united by, like, their shared life through their kid. So that line does make me wonder, like, okay, was he substantially different? Or is it just that when he was around, he was more emotionally present? I think... That the yielding to the strongest force in the room was a trait that pre-existed before the death of his son, just because of the force of Sarah's personality. Yeah, that's probably true. I can see him yielding to her throughout their whole time together, which is kind of, you know, why it doesn't work out, too. Right. She wants him to be someone that he just is not. I mean, she wants him to fight back, which he just is not willing to do. He also comes from the most passive family on the planet. Who are those people? So, uh, William Hurt is our main character. We have his brothers, who are played by Ed Begley Jr. and David Ogden Steers, who are like, you know, men in their 40s, who still live in, I think, their grandparents' house, and are just like wholly incapable of living. They're entirely taken care of by their sister Rose, who's played by Amy Wright. To the point that when she gets married and moves out, she swiftly moves back in because she's convinced that they are, like, gonna die from eating glorp. While still being married. Yeah, she takes casseroles over to her husband every once in a while. It's so depressing. Yeah, and I do think that movie is mining comedy out of them, like the sequence where they're alphabetizing the groceries. And also the scene of describing how the whole family just gets lost, just constantly lost was funny but can't do much about it since they don't answer the phone yeah (laughs) that is also such a weird trait they have the phone they refuse to answer it because they figure if it's the neighbors and it's important they'll just come over and knock on the door and i think they start that so that macon can avoid people yes we gotta say macon leary is a real book name like only somebody in a book would have that name it's so weird hearing the name macon i can see why an author would add it to the book, but hearing it out loud all the time just really threw me off. Yeah, there's every once in a while in a movie you hear a name and you're like, oh, this movie's based on a book because no one writing a script would use this name. It's such a bizarre name. The other siblings have slightly off names, like Porter and Rose, but they're still names and not cities in middle of Georgia. Yeah, Ed Begley Jr. is named Charles. Yeah. It's odd. Where did Macon come from? I mean, it comes from the novel by Ann Tyler. Yeah. Oh, Anne. You definitely did not say that out loud as you were writing the book. The book actually initially was optioned by John Malkovich, who I think would be interesting casting as Macon. I would like to see it. He has a similar sad energy. But a more energetic sadness. Right. Like I said, I do think Hurt works really well in this. And this is coming off of his big Oscar run in the 80s, where he wins in 1985 for Kiss of the Spider Woman. And then he's nominated the next two years for Children of a Lesser God and Broadcast News. And then he's in this, which he's not nominated for, but it is a Best Picture nominee. I enjoyed the movie enough, but there was something about it that never clicked into the realm of great for me. Yeah, I think I feel similarly. Like I said, I really 
the the William Hurt performance as Megan has really stuck with me as you know that sort of enduring unshakable depression that his character is clearly experiencing. The thing that I have struggled with is Muriel, Gina Davis's character, who is the one who gets an Oscar for this movie. Yeah, I did not think this was Gina Davis at her best. No, not at all. It's crazy that she got her Oscar for this and not for uh, A League of Their Own. I mean, that's that's just the best she's ever been, right? I would say so. Um, Beetlejuice. Her other nomination is for Thelma and Louise, but that's the year of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, so she had she did not have a real shot. Yeah. I want to see who was nominated for Best Actress for the year of League of Their Own. It was the 66th Academy Awards. Yeah. Holly Hunter wins for the piano. That's a pretty good win. Yeah. And then we have Angela Bassett for What's Love Got to Do With It, Stockard Channing for Six Degrees of Separation, Emma Thompson for The Remains of the Day, and Deborah Winger for Shadowlands. I mean... I haven't seen most of those movies, but just the names alone, it's a tough category. Yeah, it's kind of hard to argue with Holly Hunter and the piano, but I could see myself giving it to Gina Davis over that. But I am well known as a partisan of that performance. Your love of Gina Davis precedes you. But yeah, I just think that like kind of from the drop, as soon as we are introduced to Gina Davis, it's clear that she is a type of character that we did not have a name for then, but we do now. Uh, yeah, she is a pre-Elizabeth Town Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Right, where her goal seems to so fully orbit just, like, Macon's self-actualization. To the point that, like, she becomes the character who's like, you say we're not together, well, I'm just gonna keep showing up until you say that we are. And, like, skipping off to Paris, which we'll have to get into because the logistics of that are baffling to me. As much as it seems like she should have an interesting life, it is all set aside at the drop of a hat to just focus on helping Megan learn to love life again. Yeah, she has a kid, and we don't find out about him for a while, because she's too busy just trying to make Megan happy. It's a, it's a very strange character. And assuming that that character type is less common in 1988, I can see how it might be a little more winsome to people then. But coming on the other side of the age of adorkable, it's... <laughs> Hard to embrace that as fully. Right. It just also feels... It's so diminishing of women. This movie, not exactly great for that. All three female characters are largely flawed in their depiction. I I do... I really like Rose. I, I really like Rose. Really fun. She's really funny, but, like, her drive to, like take care of people to the point where her husband moves in with her two brothers in their 40s so that she can take care of all three of them. That's funny to me. If the whole movie is, like, at that tone of, like, there are no jokes in the movie. It's just, like, people quietly doing things that are ridiculous. I like that. Yeah. It's just the family feels so disjointed from the story of Macon and Muriel. Yeah, it's really just a place for him to hide. And it's a place where they all hide. You know, Rose gets what she wants. She gets to marry a dude. But she pretty quickly retreats back into that space. It's very odd. They're a group of people completely lacking in self-confidence. I would have liked more of them or a different movie about them, probably. Because I enjoy a comedy that doesn't have jokes sometimes. Where it's just... You know, people being so unattached to reality that they do 
funny things that are beyond the pale. But again, it's like, it's very subtle funny things. It's not like Christopher Guest level antics. No, not at all. It's just alphabetizing your groceries on the pantry shelves. And getting annoyed that you've been handed pasta to go under N or P when it should have gone under E for elbow macaroni. Right, or, you know, getting lost going two blocks. I do like that they introduced that after the scene where he's like, are you sure you won't get lost when she drops him off? And she's like, I'm parking around the corner. And so it's it's very weird scene in the moment. And then they explain it later where she did get lost for like 30 minutes going two blocks. Yeah. There are things that work in this movie and it mostly works, but I don't, I, I guess it didn't win, but I don't know if I would have picked it for best picture from that year. I think I've seen other movies that came out that year. Especially in the period where there's only five Best Picture nominees. Right. I would have picked Who Framed Roger Rabbit for Best Picture over this. Right, that's the thing. Roger Rabbit might be my winner. Mark, I think that when we finish the set, when we talk about Rain Man, we should also come with our own list of five from 1988. Yeah. Which I think both of us will include Working Girl. Absolutely. And of course, you're going to have Mississippi Burning at your number one. Oh, of course. Yes. My favorite movie of that year. But I was looking over the list and I was like, 1988 is a pretty good year. I think it would be fun to see where we shake out. I think that's a really good idea that I will forget as soon as we hit stop on recording this. And I will need you to remind me of at least a day before recording the Rain Man episode. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, besides getting nominated for Best Picture... The Accidental Tourist was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score for John Williams, and, as we said, it won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for Gina Davis. It was also nominated for Best uh, Drama and Best Score at the Golden Globes. It won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Film, and it came in 10th on the French magazine Cahiers du Cinéma's annual list of movies. Interesting. I think that Gina Davis's win is weird. I agree, especially, I mean, you know, we talked about my love of Gina Davis and the League of Their Own. I am also very firmly on the record with my feelings about Sigourney Weaver and Working Girl. I mean, yes. Can you, I, just to throw it back, also, Joan Cusack also getting a supporting actress nomination for Working Girl was truly, that is justice in the world. Absolutely. Sigourney Weaver probably should have won over her, but... Getting recognition as the friend is such a thankless role that seeing someone get acknowledged for the work of it is great. It's an all-time great friend performance and also one of the better friend parts out there. Right. I mean, Judy Greer takes bad parts and elevates them through good performances. It helps that this was also written as a good part. Yeah. Uh, This actually was in theaters at the same time as Working Girl and at the same time as Rain Man right there at the end of the year. It opened wide on January 6th. 1989, so it was one of those things that, like, had a qualifying run at the end of the year and then opened properly. Mm -hmm. It was in third place behind Rain Man, the eventual Best Picture winner, and Twins. You know Twins? Oh, Twins. A movie I know absolutely nothing about beyond the cast. We should maybe watch Twins to see if we need to include it in our top five. I do know that Rain Man was the highest grossing movie of that year. That used to be a thing. Like, one, people used to go to see dramas. Two... If you go back 30, 40 years, Best Picture was like a big boost to a movie's box office, the nomination and the win. And so Best Picture winners especially would play like huge blockbusters. Would they bring the movie back after nominations? Often, yes. Okay. 
that would definitely boost your box office score too. Which still happens a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I saw AMC bringing back the Best Picture nominees <laughs> as our AMC Artisan Films, I'm sure. Just like, you know, The Batman, an AMC Artisan Film. I texted you when I was walking to my screening of The Batman, and I saw that it was given the golden AMC Artisan Film framing. And at that point, I was like, is this just on my app? Am I being punked? I, what are the qualifications? Do the studios buy it? That's the only justification in my mind I could come up with. It starts to make me think, like, does this just mean someone at AMC watched this and was like, yeah, like, thought was put into this? (laughs) A base level of effort was exerted into this film. I can't wait for the next Avengers movie that just has the gold border. Uh, Let's be clear. Before that, we're going to see the AMC artisan film Morbius. (sighs) When what we really need is the AMC Artisan film, the full feature-length version of Nicole Kidman watching a movie in a silver suit. You know, I've only been seeing the long version of that recently. They must have heard the complaints online. Because the people who are going to the movie theaters are the people that would enjoy that weird clip that they made. It's so strange. And it's great. We love it. We need it, all of us. (sighs) It's hard to find a ton about The Accidental Tourist these days because despite being a Best Picture nominee in relatively recent memory, it hasn't had a lot of sticking power. No, I got this confused in my mind with The Tourist when you put it on first, and I was like, are we doing that bad Angelina Jolie Brad Pitt movie? When you Google The Accidental Tourist 1988 in quotes and you take out options to like rent it or stream it, very quickly you just get illegal uploads of the movie. Wow. There aren't, like, any interviews with people about it? Not really. No retrospectives? I don't know why this would need a retrospective. Well, part of the thing is that, like, within the filmography of Lawrence Kasdan, there are just, like, much better remembered movies, like Body Heat or Silverado, or people will talk to him about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Or, you know, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. We should note that Kasdan's co-writer of the film Solo, A Star Wars Story... His son, Jake Kasdan, does appear in this movie. As who? He is the other kid in the clothing store. Oh. Doesn't his daughter appear in this movie, too? Uh, probably somewhere. I think I saw someone named Kasdan as the, it says receptionist, so I think the other person at the uh, dog boarding vet place. Yeah, I'm seeing that, too. And it looks like Jonathan Kasdan plays a boy at a doctor's office. Okay. I mostly know Jake Kasdan as the co-writer of Solo, who decided to incorporate a bunch of stuff from the Star Wars animated shows into that movie, which just confused people. Yeah, um, not a lot of people watch those shows. I mean, look, I agree that they are good, but I got multiple emails the weekend after that opened with people asking me to explain when the movie was set because Darth Maul was in it. And I was like, no, no, you have to understand, the top half of Darth Maul survived and got robot legs. Which fun (laughs) yeah great but yeah so there's like not a ton out there about the accidental tourist so i kind of think the best thing for us to do is to dig into the romance itself because that's enough of a focus of the movie that it'll get us to talk about anything we want to talk about it won't be like last week when we had to describe all of turbo before we moved on to the romance oh my god turbo turbo dreamworks did it again the same year as the crudes oh my That was the same year as the Croods. Uh, We haven't actually recorded the Turbo episode yet. (laughs) Wow. I'm sure my mind will be broken when we record it. 
All right, so why don't we get into the points, Mark, and, and talk about the romance of the accidental tourist. Ugh, all right, let's get into it. So, every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points to guide conversations. So, Mark, will you take us to point one? Yes, of course I will. So, point one, the movie opens. William Hurt is a tour book writer for reluctant businessmen who only travel for work. I think this is a hilarious premise. It is really funny because... He describes at one point trying to find American food in the UK so that people have a taste of home. His whole pitch is like traveling businessmen or people who rather people who go on business trips would often rather just be at home. And so these are travel guides for them to as nearly as possible pretend they have not left wherever they're from to the point that when he and Muriel are eating Burger King in the shadow of the Arc du Triomphe, he says, like, take off the extra pickle and onion to make sure it's the Whopper you're used to. And it's not even like, oh, they have some, like, weird French sauce on their Whopper. It's, like, an extra pickle. And he says, no good. When Julian proposed this to him and he goes, I hate traveling. And he goes, yes, exactly. I did think that sums up exactly this type of book. And I know so many people that feel this way about business trips. But I've rarely met people that take a lot of business trips that also seem to hate travel in general. Yeah, so it is, like, a pretty funny premise. He's talking about, like, how to pack just one bag to make it quick, including, like, you know, gray suits are best because they hide dirt, and they also come in a pinch for unexpected funerals. I mean, all of his advice in terms of packing is actually very good advice. Yeah, but the whole thing is structured around a guy who just, like, does not want to engage with anything meaningfully. Right, and obviously they use that motif to describe his relationship to his life in general every time he writes a passage for the book it's like hmm, that seems to have some strange resonance to the life you are living at the moment so the movie starts with him coming back home to baltimore from a trip i think to atlanta yeah so it's atlanta first he comes back and he sits down to talk with his wife played by kathleen turner named sarah and she basically immediately is like this isn't working. Neither of us are moving on from the death of our son. Their son was killed in an armed robbery of like a, a fast food restaurant. I think so. And it's just time for us to take some distance. I want a divorce maker. I rented an apartment downtown. Honey, listen, it's been a hard year. We've had a hard time. People who lose a child often feel this way. Everyone says it puts a terrible strain on the marriage, but it doesn't have to tear us apart. Listen, I've been thinking, have you ever considered we might have another baby? Oh, Macon. I know we can't replace Ethan, but... No, I'm sorry. It wouldn't ever work. All right, forget that. It was a crazy idea, right? Crazy notion, but... All I'm saying is we can start over. So she moves to a apartment in somewhere, I guess. We don't really yeah, see somewhere, it. Yeah, uh, somewhere else in town. She does not take to his idea, like, what if instead we had another kid? I mean, I think it's a very reasonable thing. And they give it a separation period before yeah. getting divorced. And it's nice that she is the one that makes the decision. So she leaves and he stays in the house with the dog. A very cute little corgi named Edward. Yes, but also a death corgi named Edward. A yeah, mischievous scamp. This is a death dog. I also kept getting thrown off because I watched The Searchers the day before I watched this movie. 
And John Wayne in that movie is Ethan Edwards. And then I was watching this movie where their dead kid is Ethan and the dog is Edward, and it kept throwing me off. I don't know, that could be a shout-out. Very well might be. Lawrence Kasdan loves westerns. So he is now just living on his own at the house. He's still working. Sarah is, you know... Not avoiding him, but they're not having real conversations. He takes a trip to London, and he has to board his dog last minute at a vet where he meets Muriel, who is also a dog trainer, and she just, like, immediately latches onto him. And this kind of brings us to point two. My speciality is dogs that bite. Specialty. Webster prefers specialty. That must be a dangerous job. Not for me. I can handle anything. Biters, barkers... Dogs that haven't been treated right. Hello, Edward. Even split personality. Split personality? Where your dog is, like, nice to you, but kills all others. Come on, Edward. Not Edward to bite me, of course. He just fell in love with me, like I think I was telling you. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. But I could train him in no time not to bite other people. You think about it and give me a call, Muriel. Remember? Muriel Pritchett. Let me give you my card. Oh, well, I'll bear that in mind. Thank you very much. Or just call for no reason. Call and talk. Talk? Sure. Talk about Edward, his problems. Talk about anything. Pick up the phone and just talk. Gina Davis is, like, impossibly thin in this movie. She is so thin. And it's so funny because, like, with changes in fashion, when she gets all dolled up in the 80s style, she looks (laughs) so much more ridiculous coming from this era than when she was in her just, like, normal outfit at the vet. Yes, but even at the vet, like, she's wearing these, like, very bright red heels and, like, ruffled socks. And just, she is supposed to be, like, a, a quirky. Right. Again, it's the classic Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Like, how do you know this person's not like other girls? It's because she dresses so weird. Yeah. So he last minute drops the dog off. He doesn't have a reservation. But she immediately falls in love, it seems. Yes, she's, like, immediately trying to seduce him as he's walking up the door she's like you know i also train dogs i could train your dog so just give me a call or you could call me just to talk yeah because his dog bit someone who was watching him yeah here's what the thing i will grant her is in the age before internet dating you gotta be a little more bold yeah you do have to put yourself out there more but i don't know what it is about him that attracts her yeah so after London, when he picks up the dog, she gives him her card saying, like, I'll trade him. And then she's like, is this your home phone number or work phone number on the contact information? I love that he responds just like, does it Does it matter? matter? But then later, Edward manages to push him down the stairs onto a laundry basket that he is bungee corded to a skateboard. So he doesn't even have to pick it up, moving it from the laundry chute to the washer machine. Okay, I like that invention. I think it's smart. From what I've read about the book... In the book, he, like, has a ton of inventions like that. Like, that's what he does. Okay, that's a fun shout-out, because I think it's the most contrived plot device that also works. Yeah, because it's the kind of thing of, like, you look at that, where the laundry chute is a pretty decent distance away, and I'm like, yeah, this would be handy. I would use this. Yeah. Good use of the skateboard that is no longer getting used since his kid died. But instead, it causes him to break his leg, and he moves in with his brothers and sister, and... All the while, Muriel is making a big effort to make him fall in love with her. Yeah, she, like, calls him out of the blue one night and, like, asks about the dog. She tries to invite herself over. She's like, oh, why don't I come over right now and and we can figure it out. And then she invites him to dinner. She's just pushing hard. And, yeah, I think you said it well. Like, 
William Hart's not a bad-looking dude, but the guy just oozes... Sad sack energy. Yeah, so it's hard to figure out why she has latched onto him so fully. The movie does not do a good job of making me believe that she would be interested in him at all. Yeah, and it just kind of gets more ridiculous in the second half when she chases him to Paris. Right. There's no reason to me for her to like him this much. But yeah, so she's pursuing him. One of the reasons he stops answering the phone is because she keeps calling, which using the home phone number that you got through work is very unethical. Yes, but I imagine was also probably more common then. Yeah. But eventually Edward corners his publisher, Julian, in a tree and he kind of admits, okay, maybe it's time to get him trained. I want to take a moment for an interlude because the points you have come up with perfectly reasonably just focus on Macon's love story. Just to talk a little bit about Bill Pullman in this movie. Yes, I assumed we would have, you know, a side conversation about them. Bill Pullman, who is like shockingly young in this movie. And very handsome. Yeah, he's a cutie. Have you been to the new Alamo Draft House in DC, Mark? Not yet. They have a statue of Bill Pullman as the president in Independence Day. <laughs> like a golden statue. <laughs> now that is interesting. Yeah. But he, he, as you said, he is the publisher, Julian. And the first time he sees Rose, Megan's sister, is immediately like, boom, I have to get with this woman. <laughs> and is like constantly trying to contrive ways. My favorite is when he shows up randomly one night and he says like, oh, I'm sorry I if I interrupted dinner. And then he is visibly upset when he's told that they already ate and starts asking when they normally eat dinner, clearly planning to come and interrupt again. Right. And being like, oh, I'd love a brewed cup of coffee. <laughs> I love when uh, Macon's like, you didn't eat dinner and you want a cup of coffee. And then that's when he goes into the sad story of his single apartment life. Right, he mentions like four or five times that he's single. He lives in an apartment building that you have to be single to live in, and it sounds so depressing. And that's the thing, like, that's the part of this movie that I enjoy, where it's just like, frankly, very depressed people fumbling their way through their lives. And that's where Muriel is supposed to stand out as this, like, luminous individual who has struggles with her life, but still manages to have all this energy. But it just feels like she doesn't fit in the world. She also has all this energy, but doesn't actually seem happy enough because she is also depressed. So I I think there's something there, but I just don't quite click with her in particular. Right. But speaking of Muriel, while training Edward, she eventually breaks him down and they go out to dinner. And this brings us to point three, where they do start kind of dating. Well, of course, there's the first time that she gets him to agree to come to dinner and he decides to back out and is just going to drop off a note explaining that he can't go to dinner. Yeah. Oh my God. I forgot about that. So he's like going up to the door with a letter and Muriel hears him at the door and answers. And instead of him leaving the letter and going, he goes in and they kiss and have sex. Well, she also says as he's sliding it out of the door, she goes like, I have a double gauge shotgun aimed at where your head is. And they keep talking about how like sketchy her neighborhood is and how bad it is and it looks just like a nice neighborhood with neighbors that are all friends with each other yeah it just like looks like a neighborhood of people who are not rich and the house just you know is older and not as nice as theirs i guess yeah so yeah he goes in they sleep together and 
at first he's like, I just need to sleep. But of course, it's a movie, so that doesn't actually happen. They do yeah. sleep together, and yeah, they kind of start dating. But he's very wishy-washy about it. And from this point on, the movie's timeline starts to get longer. Yeah, so we'll jump between scenes, and it's clear that months have gone by. He moves in with her at a certain point. Right, and one of the big wrinkles that we alluded to earlier is her son, Alexander, who was born quite prematurely and is allergic to most things. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much everything. So he's like a little kid. He can't eat much, but Macon really takes to him and is like showing him how to like do plumbing repair and like taking him to buy clothes. And that's clearly a big part of it for both of them, where Muriel appreciates this guy who is helping to take care of her son. And he is a little bit more coming back to life with what is clearly a stand in for his own dead son. Mm hmm. And I think one of the better moments with Muriel in this movie is when it's been a while. I think he has seen Sarah again, which we'll get to in the next point. But it goes to his relationship with her son where he's like, oh, we should send him to private school. I'll pay for it. Which I guess shows that his books are selling well. And then that's when she's just like, okay, does that mean you're planning to stay with me forever? Because... That's a 10-year commitment. I can't just have him in private school for two years and then send him back to public school. And this is when you get, you know, real emotion out of her that is very believable. Just tell me this. Do you picture us getting married sometime? I mean, when your divorce comes through? Muriel, marriage is... I don't know. You don't, do you? You don't know what you want. One minute you like me, and the next you don't. One minute you're ashamed to be seen with me, and the next you think I'm the best thing that ever happened to you. You think you can just go along like this? No plans? Maybe tomorrow you'll be here, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll just go on back to Sarah. All I'm saying is... All I'm saying is, take care of what you promised my son. Don't go making him any promises you don't intend to keep. You do have the feeling that Macon proposed it without really thinking through the implications of it all. In part because he's he's not a long-term thinker at all. Right. And he's like reading a newspaper as he says it. He's not fully even invested in the conversation. He just says it offhandedly because Alexander struggled to do subtraction. But so that that is the beginning of the two of them starting to have more and more fights. At the same time, going into point four, we go to Amy's wedding to Julian. and Okay. It is crazy that Sarah, Macon's ex-wife, is his sister's maid of honor. It's so funny that she picks Sarah and doesn't tell Macon. You, yeah, right. She, he finds out at the wedding. You almost wonder if, like, if Rose just doesn't know any other women. I mean, it's possible. And, I mean, her reintroduction at the wedding is great because she walks in and she looks amazing. Yeah, and she y- looks like Kathleen Turner. You are taken aback as an audience member, so you understand how he feels. Yeah, but pretty quickly, Sarah is starting to be like, you know, we we had a good run, right? It wasn't so bad. Yeah, and then they start talking on the phone. And she says, oh, I got the papers from the lawyer, and they're so impersonal. They don't capture any of our relationship. I think one of the big keys in all of this is that her lease on her apartment is up and so she moves back into their old house since Megan is staying with Muriel. Mm -hmm. And so for her I think it's this return to her old life and she's like, oh, Mm -hmm. what about like the other pieces of my old life? 
she basically had her year away and is now kind of ready for a return to comfort, a return to normalcy. And she kind of gets it. Yeah, because Megan is so weak-willed as a person that when she invites him to come back into that house with her, he's like, yeah, okay, I guess, and just does it. And we see, like, half a scene of a cursory breakup with Muriel, but not a whole lot of it, in part because it's clear that he's not that invested in that conversation. He's just going through the motions to get out of there. Yeah, so he moves in with Sarah, and (laughs) almost immediately they start fighting again. Yeah, because they were bad together. And this brings us to point five when Megan goes to Paris for work. And Muriel earlier had said Paris is her dream. It's where she always wants to go. And so she's just on the plane with him. Here's my big question. She is specifically on that plane to Paris because he is as well, right? Yeah. I don't how know does how she, know? she found out. And I don't know how she got his flight number. Unless yeah. she called Julian. But why would Julian tell her? It doesn't make any sense. The movie makes no effort to answer to. It's the fundamental issue with the last half hour of this movie. You're just like, well, she's now a stalker, and I don't know how she achieved this. Yeah. Like, she has crossed over from being merely pushy to being alarming. I didn't care for it. Yeah. And... While they're in Paris, she stays at the same hotel. Somehow she knows what hotel he's in. And she keeps basically trying to force him to hang out with her. Yeah. He eventually concedes to taking her to Burger King. And they have dinner. And she comes over that night and is opening a bottle of wine, clearly hoping he'll invite her in. But instead, he says, like, oh, I have to wake up really early for work to go on day trips out of Paris. He helps her open the bottle of wine. She says, well, tell me when you leave and I will maybe come join you, leaving it open for him to invite her. But he clearly has no intention of doing so. And after she leaves, he then strains his ankle reaching for something? Uh, No, he just pulls out his back. Oh, okay. Yeah, his back just goes out. I watched that twice trying to figure out what had happened. I mean, I think it's actually a great choice because... You don't need a real trigger to become basically completely immobilized for a day. Yeah. This has happened to my mom a few times. It always sucks. And basically when it happens, she is just laying in bed for a whole day to recover. Yeah. So he calls the office and is like, I got to push back these these trips because <laughs> I I'm can't stuck in move. Bed. And Rose, who is now working in Julian's office, dispatches Sarah to Paris to take care of him and to help get things going. And earlier he had said he'd never even brought his wife on one of these trips. Right. Because he doesn't find them fun. Yes. And so she comes, she immediately starts taking control. She gives him pills and is like, okay, I'll go on these trips and write it for you. And I fully believe she has read his books enough that she could manage to do that. Yeah. This weirdly, like the Paris stuff is the part of their return to being a couple that I buy the most. I fully believe that an emergency would bring them back together. And it clearly is. You know, she is taking care of him. They're building more of a partnership. They're talking about the time they've spent together. There's a whole conversation about whether they should consider themselves as having been together for, I think, like 17 versus 18 years. And Macon says, no, you count the bigger number. I consider this last year just another stage in our marriage, which I kind of get, but... It's also pretty dismissive of the experiences they had separately. Yeah. 
And we don't know anything about what she did that year because he refuses to ask. Right. Because he's not that interested or interesting a person. Right. That's the thing I don't get. Why would anyone be this interested in this guy? He's pretty boring. He is so boring. Which I don't think is a flaw of the movie. I think he's intentionally boring. Yeah. But it makes you question Muriel's judgment. Yeah. And then, but the pills she's giving him start making him so tired and that he can't do anything. And then he starts, they get into fights and he's starting to lose interest. So eventually he stops taking the pills. She's fighting him because he refuses to ask about what she did during that year, if she slept with anyone. She wants him to care about what went on during that period. And he can't bring himself to do it. So after the fight, like the next morning, he wakes Sarah up and just says, like, I'm leaving you. I'm going to Muriel. And so he tries to find her. Muriel thinks that he has gone on his day trips and didn't tell him. So she is now checked out. And he basically starts looking for her, gets in a cab to go to the airport when he can't find her. And then he sees her trying to hail a cab. And then they smile at each other. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. And that is the accidental tourist. So, Will, do you find this relationship believable? I think we've made some of our feelings pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We keep returning to the fact that we just don't really understand why Muriel does anything. I get the Sarah relationship with him, but even then, they don't seem to work that well. Yes, but I understand inertia there, and I understand especially that it's triggered by her moving back into the house. That it's when she is coming back into that old life that she used to have that she's like, oh, what about all of this? Wasn't this kind of good? So I'm inclined to give this like a five. Yeah, because the Sarah stuff I buy, but still, why is Muriel interested in this man at all? It doesn't make any sense. Muriel, honestly, get a life. Yeah, get better judgment. Now, do you think that Megan or Muriel is dateable? I'm guessing I know the answer. Yeah, no. I think we've made it pretty clear that we don't really like either of them. Neither of them. Like, Megan is a sad sack. I also like... We're watching this movie, like, the week after William Hurt died, and so I also have all of the, like, stories about William Hurt as a, like, physically abusive partner in my head. Yeah. Which is not a thing that's on the character, but it is still a thing that's... In your brain. Yeah. And Muriel's just, like, a classic Manic Pixie dream girl that only exists to please a man with no life of her own. She abandons her kid to, like, neighbors taking shifts watching him while she's in Paris. Seems bad. Seems bad. So, no. Do you think they'll stay together? I think they'll stay together as long as Muriel wants them to. Right. I think he will continue to live his life via inertia. He's like the most weak-willed person. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Probably, given the options, uh, Julian. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. He is the character who is kind of perplexed by everyone else. And just like struggling struggling to care about these people like he, he wants to but also just like completely bewildered by the way they live their lives yeah i think julian is probably the only choice now mark should the film the accidental tourist be made into a musical no <laughs> i think it, it is just i don't know i just don't think we need it i don't think we need it i do think it could be interesting it could be interesting but i think it would be a bummer it would be a bummer And I think it would be a bummer in not the best way. (sighs) All right. I think that's it for The Accidental Tourist. Yeah, we got one more to go. We got to talk Rain Man. But next week, we're sticking with the 80s. In perhaps one of the most 80s movies out there. 
We're finally doing it. Mark's going to watch Top Gun. We're watching Top Gun. I haven't seen it yet. Not that excited because military stuff bores me for the most part. But you do like 80s sex scenes. But there are 80s sex scenes and men with their shirts off playing volleyball homoerotically. So I at least have that to look forward to. All right. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people find the show. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from the accidental tourist? I guess it's just put yourself out there. It does seem to work. It does seem to work, because both Julian and Muriel put themselves out there, and it works out. In the world of the movie, at least. Yeah. Will is consulting his notes. He is struggling to come up with anything. I got nothing. I got nothing beyond what you said. Okay. Well, there Put yourself you... out there. <laughs> Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Some other man